Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are The Thought Hackers. With us today is a woman by the name of Barbara Miller, who is a master of transformation, a true pioneer carving a path for others who wish to save time to follow from tobacco addiction to recovery to dealing with trauma and epic adversity. Barbara delivers tough love talk. According to Barbara, life is hard and there's no reason to sugarcoat it. Her experience is based on overcoming extreme odds as they were stacked against her in ways most people cannot understand. At the tender age of eight, this was the mission she experienced as a vision. And the heart of her vision was to live as an example that anything is possible. So Barbara, I want to welcome you to the show. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, so, you know, reading about your history and, and talking with you about it, I seem to recall that you were saying something that happened in your life as early as the age of three. Which yeah, defined what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first, the the very first big whammy, and uh, that was when uh, my mom left. She walked out, and I was so traumatized by that. Uh, I later found out from the foster home that when I came to live with them, I didn't actually talk. And doing some research on it uh, as a student on self-esteem and other issues that I was studying. They actually say that um, being abandoned by uh, a parent, especially the same-sex parent, is actually one of the most devastating things that can happen to a child, especially at that young age. And I don't remember her leaving. There's no memories, and I don't remember not talking. I just heard that um, my brothers had said to the foster family, don't bother, she doesn't talk. Wow. So when your mother walked out, was she the only supporter in the family? No, they. Uh, my she left. She left us all. Like walked out on the family and my father. We did eventually go back to my father after a few years in the foster home. He actually worked really hard uh. and fought for us in the courts. And he's one of the first men that actually got his kids back. And uh, growing up, he always just said, "You know what? You're just like your mother. She just wanted to work, and that's what she did. She she left. She wanted to work. <laughs> I didn't actually." I didn't actually think that was an insult when he said, you're just like your mother. I was like, oh, she just wants to work. And turns out, so do I. I just there's want to nothing, work. <laughs> there's nothing, nothing wrong with working. Right. What, what, do you have any, any memories or any ideas of what precipitated the event that she just – like from – I'm just wanting to understand something here. So when your mother walked out, your father was not in the picture anymore. No, no, he was. No, oh, he, he was. was. And oh, I, I believe that she walked out on the idea of what family was supposed to be. My father was an alcoholic and he was abusive. And she was under the impression that he would put us up for adoption and he didn't. He took on the uh -huh. role and a lot of dads would, but my father didn't want to quit on us the way she did. So he eventually we were apprehended. A year later we were apprehended and put into a foster home and and that's because he had us kids and he was drinking and we were probably neglected and yeah. somebody reported us and we were apprehended and luckily the three of us got to go to the foster home and we got to stay together. So, so. the foster home turned out to be a good environment then? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was really it was 
especially because like they were like we were like the Brady Bunch. They had uh, three kids, and so there was three boys and three girls, and we were kind of up in the middle of nowheres in in Prince George. And one of the reasons they liked foster kids was because in a remote area they could play with us as kids. Oh, so it was a big, you know, lots of kids playing together. So how long were you in the foster system? Well, that particular home, which I was really fortunate that we didn't bounce around like some people do, uh, three years, but we get to stay in the same home for three years. And my father was working at sobering up and getting a career and proving that he could look after his kids. And it took him three years um, to get his act together, which is why I always knew he loved me, because I always believe that actions speak louder than words. And his actions for getting us back spoke volumes. Yeah, it's a really positive or very important statement that you said, which is actions speak louder than words. I agree with you mm-hmm. because because people can say, I love you, I care about you all they want, but the expression goes, talk is cheap, show me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I never heard him say, I love you. He didn't, in some ways, he didn't really need to. I just knew because of his actions that he got us back and... Yeah, and I love my father for that. He he yeah. did his best, and he'd start drinking again, and was physically abusive, and you know. But in the grand scheme of things, I still knew that he did his best. He got us back. Yeah. So mm-hmm. along the journey, like again, reading your biography, there were these different traumas, if you will, or worst moments. I don't know how you would describe them, but I remember reading them, and I was just wondering, like. It was her worst moment in all of this. The worst. Mm, oh, uh, I actually coined this phrase, uh, and maybe it exists somewhere else. I don't know. I have never heard of it before. But uh, I ca- I phrased this. Uh, it's called compound pain. And mm. when you when you've experienced more than one trauma, and and then you want to recover from them, because I one of the things I always wanted as a, a young kid was I wanted complete healing as if nothing bad had happened and you know that's a lot of work to what does that take to actually recover from trauma and and create a life that you could have as if none of that really happened and so there's um a process that you have to go through and uh that the thickest moments probably would have been when i was experiencing all four traumas simultaneously which is a real brain, I won't use that word, uh, it's a mind mess because you have to sort of compartmentalize where the pain, that pain belongs to my mom, that pain belongs to my dad, that pain belongs to here, and you sort of have to, because it isn't just one thing, and right. and so that was that was a real learning um, thing where I was, because, you know, part of processing and recovering is to actually experience the pain of remembering what happened and you have to go through it and and experience yeah. it again. But experiencing it all at once, not yeah. recommended for the week. No, not at all. And you said four traumas. So what were they? Well, the first one at three um, was, and you know, this was by the time I was seven. Uh, the first trauma was three, and eventually I guess I started talking. And then I would become a speaker, and they say, well, that's changed. <laughs> 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 Which is funny. Yes. Can't believe I never used to talk. The second trauma would be at five when I was in foster home. 
because I didn't talk, I, I found this out later that the foster family uh, or the social services report said that I had a speech impediment. The speech impediment was just initially I didn't talk. So the school system got this in their brain that I had a learning disability. And so from five, I was marked, I don't know what word you want to use. Um, we don't use that word anymore, but retarded. Yep. So oh, yeah, <laughs> we don't sure. use that word anymore. Yep. But, uh, so the, the trauma of um, that second one would be to do uh, to be. Uh, I actually wrote about it, and I called it "raped of an education," because I they took twelve years of education the way you know it from me. It's gone. It's missing. It was taken from me based on someone's um, misunderstandings or misdiagnosis. So from five, when I would go live with my father at seven, the stamp would already be on my forehead that I would not be educated the way we should. And that indoctrination, and it was one of the most difficult. Anyway, so the, the school system was traumatizing. Just, and, just, and on that, just on that, Barbara, with that, with that age of, of five-year-old where it's such an imprinting period of of our environment um, and you say that you know having that stamped on your forehead did you create the belief around it also that you had that learning disability no not at all I always thought that in in my silent voice when I was looking at my report cards and my father was talking to me they were saying this and they were saying that and my silent voice was I don't think so I don't think so I don't think so and I just sort of was going along with what I was told and mm. they you know um, you know, so raped of an education it would be the second trauma, and the third one would be uh, sexual abuse, and that would be that would be um, complicated with uh, throwing in financial reward, which gave me some really oh. weird, really weird concepts around um, money and not wanting. I wanted to be wealthy, but I didn't really want to take the money. And years later, I would learn that. It's okay to take the money now. <laughs> it's okay to take the money. So, yeah, you know. But back and then, the, the, yeah. <laughs> so the money was intertwined with the sex somehow. So like being paid Sexual for abuse. sex or something. You could say that. Yep. Yeah. And that compl uh, complicates um, molestation when you throw in the financial aspect of it. Really adds a different element to that type of abuse. Yeah. Uh, because it, you know, there's a sense of like, oh, well, you're getting money for it, so therefore it's legitimate even when you're being abused. And seven. I was seven. Yeah. Mm. So then, you know, that's all those three happened before, before or seven. <laughs> it's just so yeah. little, right? Uh -huh. yeah. And, and uh, then the fourth one would be when I published my book, How to Quit Smoking, even if you don't want to, I was planning a book launching party and you know I'd worked my butt off to try to get this life that I knew I wanted against all odds which we just talked about mm -hmm. and so I'm, I'm planning a book launching party and I was renting to some people and they didn't like the fact that I was you know Dale Carnegie says if you get your head above the crowd you'll be criticized get mm -hmm. used to it well these people that I was renting to really didn't like the fact that I was making strides and getting ahead so long story short was they actually killed my 10 year old cat that I loved and adored and I and it was missing at first and I looked for that cat like a mother would look for its kid. child yeah 
and it was like uh, they took my kid. I lived with my didn't live. I lived with my father for seven years. I had that cat for ten, and you know I had kept myself safe from really not falling in love, and I was just I had my heads to the grindstone, and I was just working just like my mom, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I just was trying, working, my work was actually to create a life that I have now. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought I'd had something on the go with this book launching. I was so excited. I was happy that I'd made it. I could prove that, you know, I, I did something with my life. I left my mark and I published my book and these people were going to say, you're not going to enjoy this. So, and they're right, I didn't. So when the cat was killed, I found out later that the cat was actually killed. And hmm. but the missing missing uh, animal is, and not knowing was, it was so crazy that when I went to the um, printer to print copies of my cat because I wanted to put posters for reward, uh, I wasn't. I said I wanted them. I would pay extra for them to be in color. And the guy says your cat is black and white. <laughs> oh my gosh I said oh yeah yeah right right okay I guess I don't need the color <laughs> but I couldn't you can't think I was in fight or flight uh, mode and and then you know I just thought I was going to be able to celebrate and you know I was looking up to the heavens and I was like going really 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 yep not I guess not Kind of felt like a punch to the gut, didn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, but you know what? The what ultimately would end up happening was the loss of that cat and that particular trauma triggered the first three, and they were all coming out all at once. Yeah, yeah, and that's and for what it's worth, um, from my own experience, it's a really common thing. It's it's like you, at least for for my own experience, uh, briefly, it was like living in a constant state of like there's a, it's like background noise, a chronic state of pain, mm -hmm. but it's low level and you can manage it. And then something happens, some kind of an event like these people with what they did to your cat. And then all of a sudden it goes from this low level thing to like a three alarm fire and you can no longer manage your life. Everything yeah, goes kaboom. Instead of, because um, I was um, not... Uh, uh, a drinker per se you know I partied but one of my first jobs as a teenager was not to get addicted to alcohol so running to get drinks was not my first go-to but you know when I thought I'd be celebrating my book I was actually going to the doctors and asking for mild tranquilizers because I was in just such a mess and that was and you know this is when I started learning about trauma and healing and I had studied for years and years and years how to be intellectually well with what happened in my life, but I was in for a rude awakening when I realized that there was an emotional journey to go on. And I yep. always wondered why I was so sensitive, why certain things, like I was a pretty strong person, but I could be really sensitive. And I would find out that the pain of all those previous things we talked about was just hovering under the skin. Mm -hmm. It was always there, but I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware of it because of all the studying that I'd done to intellectually be happy and whole and what I thought was whole. But I didn't realize the first trauma probably disconnected my brain from my heart. And I would later learn that um, the brain has a natural ability to disconnect when it says, technically, you're too little to handle this right now. You can deal with this later. And that, yes. later, that later would be when I was 38 and... So essentially what those 
people did, there was three of them involved, what they did was they actually ripped off um, a scab to a wound that was already there. Yeah. Can I ask you something? I'm, I'm curious. Um, this disconnection, would, would you say that for some of your experiences, you experienced what some would call amnesia? The only amnesia that I've experienced is when my mom walked out. I do have memories of my mom, a couple mm -hmm. of them. And, you know, she seemed really, really tall. But I realize now that was just because I was really short. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from a, a three-year-old perspective, she would seem like a giant. No I met my mom when I was 19. And the first thing I said to her was, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> yeah. I know, eh? Uh, but I don't funny. remember, I do remember my mom, but I don't actually remember the time frame where she was gone. And which is odd because when I was four and I was in church, I remember all of that like it was yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just so you know from my own experience, um, when the mind goes through severe trauma, like you, you mentioned yourself earlier, the disconnection. One of the things that can happen, and for myself it happened repeatedly over a period of decades, is I would wind up in severely traumatic situations that my mind couldn't handle. And the way that it would handle it was to create amnesia. Mm -hmm. So I literally couldn't remember. And uh, the, the first time it happened was when I was 10. There was a particular instant, and it imprinted on me that I was stupid, so I failed my whole way through school. And I woke up from it when I was standing in a locker room at the age of 23, wow. thinking about the complex schoolwork we were doing and thinking that I was doing, realizing I was actually doing well. And then the question popped into my mind, where did I ever get the idea that it was stupid? And then I remembered grade, grade five being humiliated in front of my class and, and the, uh, the trigger of amnesia and all of that. And as soon as I remembered it, it, it flooded my mind in, in all its entirety. It lasted a few seconds, then it went away, and my marks skyrocketed. Wow. So that's amazing. That's, that's why I asked you that question, because there are many things that, we, that our minds do to help us cope with situations, but we don't necessarily know what it is or, or recognize what's happening. But what you may not realize, and which may be helpful, is quite often when our minds do this, it, it does create trouble for us down the road. And it can also be a protection device because you literally can't handle it at that time. And then later something will trigger it, the memories will come back, and you can process it at that time. Emotionally, yes. Yes, and yes, absolutely. That is actually how unique and amazing our brain is, that it actually recognizes, it. and through studying this, there is a system where information comes in and the, the brain, uh, one of the, I'm not sure which part of the brain makes a decision saying, no, you can't handle this. And I always thought it was crazy when they said that this stuff is stored in the body. It is actually mm -hmm. true that um, it goes from the one, the back of your brain and it says you can't handle this. So it actually stores it, that goes, the information goes into the spine, into the nervous system and it's actually stored there. And that's where the memory will sit. And I actually thought we thought that was crazy. And through getting better and learning stuff, I was like, oh, I guess it really is still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it is. And unless we deal with it one, one way or another, I mean, so what exactly got you to the point where you 
there were there must have been some sort of transition point or maybe several where you really started to to deal with this stuff where you were no longer over overwhelmed we well, you know probably step one is actually understanding that uh, you know when just to back up a little bit the you know you know when you're in the in the the um, the fairgrounds and you have that little game where there's those head and you can hit it down with the hammer and it'll pop up yeah whack you gotta hit it and it pops up well i used to have this system that i could do that with the emotions when they started coming up i could whack them and another one pop up and i (laughs) hit them and that was sort of my coping mechanism for this pain that would pop up i was like no back down back down back down and it's like sweep it under the carpet sweep it under the carpet and then because i was like i don't have time for this i gotta do this i gotta do that well when the cat was taken that mechanism was broken and it didn't work anymore and so everything was kind of flooding out. And because of the amount of pain that was probably in there that I wasn't actually aware of, I really thought because I was studying intellectually, I was like, no, I got this. I'm covered. I even went to a counselor and talked about sexual abuse. And I went, see, I can talk about it. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but I just Denial about is it. not a river in Egypt. I know, I know. But, you know, I really was because I had studied a lot of stuff intellectually on getting better because I just – my goal and my mission was just be happy. And then this was happening and I was like – so in, and after about six months of – this continuous um, and this these people actually lived in my house I was renting to them this trauma and experience of mutiny in my home and getting it back would take four months to get them out and wow. legally and then to get better uh, all the while they're in the house laughing at me because I'm in pain because my cat there's no celebration and then so this fight or flight system I would later find out that we're not supposed to stay in fight or flight for very long and I was in fight or flight for about six months and it did actually mess with the brain chemistry, and and I had to succumb to. Actually, about a year later, I realized I was not able to get my mind back on to the track, and so I succumbed to the antidepressants, saying, "I'll do this. Mm. Don't want to," but I because the doctor had explained it to me in terms of what was happening biochemistry, I went, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it," but it, I had to because I couldn't actually stop crying anymore. It was I couldn't control right. it. Like that controlling mechanism was just broken. And I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't know where it was all coming from. And and so what I did was the only counseling that I could get that was free because I didn't have any money was um, sexual abuse. So I went back to the sexual abuse place and I was like, I guess I got to talk about this stuff. And I went through the process of group and counseling because I was like, I got to talk about it. I got to go through this and learn about where these emotions come from and just be able to share and talk and so uh, while the antidepressants helped me to get stable, and then when I was ready, about six months later, I was kind of six months to a year, I was ready to come off of them. And when I came off of them, I was armed with some information that was like, okay, we're going in. We're going in. And going in, that's where we don't get over things. Uh, we don't get over things. We go through them. But you can't actually go through them on a mind-altering substance because it actually blocks your receptors from feeling the reality of what's going on. It could, it so, could very well be true. I, I yeah, I knew uh, I was going in, and I braced myself, and I was prepared. Yeah, hey, Miss, I, at least I thought. You? At least I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this fight or flight thing is <clears throat> is what it's all about. I mean, it's the, any trauma that takes you up to that level a lot of people can just sort of normalize and and stabilize and come back down out of it but 
when you when you get locked up into that fight or flight state and that's where you stay that's where you know it was ptsd and, and and everything is all the triggers and everything it's how do you get out of that point how did you go with the um you know with that counseling and with the group sessions um i know with with working with the clients that i work with is actually helping them to get down out of that fight or flight state to uh, sort of well, that's into, where that's where emotions. yeah. yeah that's how, a, how did you go a, with that? Because it was um, like that's a, just, that's a great great point. You know, how do you get over that? And that's mm. where that's when I I realized I had to succumb to uh, um, getting the medical treatment for the antidepressants. Okay, which, I, I didn't which want stabilized. To, it stabilized me yeah. right, so that when you're stable, uh, you can mend and function and. You, it just sort of stabilizes you to, um, and that's what it's doing is you're almost resetting the brain chemistry. And when I looked at it from a medical point of view, I was like, because I really don't believe in antidepressants and it, the whole, I don't like it because I, I just wanted my own brain. But I realized that I, I had been in a fight or flight, and he was a good doctor when he actually said, you're not supposed to stay in fight or flight no. for that long. no. He says your brain chemistry has been altered, and when he looked at, I looked at it from a medical point of view. I was like, "Yeah, okay, I'll do it." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you you do what you you do what you have to do to get through it. Um, I went through a, a round of antidepressant stuff myself, but I was on the lowest possible dose at the time, mm-hmm. and and I remember this was after a period of being homeless and getting off the street, but I was stuck in high anxiety, and I couldn't come down. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter what I did. I had meditation techniques. They didn't work. And then I took this medicine. Within a week, I could feel that it was coming down. That stabilizes I, you, for yeah, sure. It, yeah, it, it definitely brought me down into into a certain way. And then, oh, now I can do this stuff. And Bob, it wasn't... Had, just with that, when you hit that point where, where the, the cat was killed and... You said that all the triggers came up of all the, the four events in the past, the four traumas, and everything just went bang. What, like so many people talk about the you know the triggers, and um, they can be massive, massive triggers and attacks, and, and set off a lot of stuff, which clearly it did for you. What was your thinking at that time to sort of, you know, you would have been in a in a very extreme fight or flight state with those triggers happening. Um, you know, what what advice would you give to listeners uh, who constantly you know people are going constantly through the triggers and the nightmares and all that sort of stuff? What would you be your advice to them when they're hitting that point with the big triggers? Well, it, I think it depends on the severity and mm-hmm. how frequent they are. You know, the trigger that that with the cat um, being yanked out of my life the way it was, it my trigger is loss. And it lost right. is it's just loss. I lost my innocence. I lost my mom. I lost the family. I lost education. I lost my cat. It was just mm. massive loss. So you know, I'm triggered whenever I used to wonder why I would cry when I brought somebody to the airport. I just have yeah. this internal. I have this internal belief that when someone leaves, it's forever. Yeah, they're not coming back. And and it's and it's all weird because you know when I have a get together and if someone leaves without saying goodbye, I'm really upset with them. I'm like, I can't believe you didn't say goodbye. And I was like, don't do that to me again, you know. So there's it's all my triggers are around loss. So I think it actually is helpful for someone to know what are your triggers, mm. and mm-hmm. 
how do they come up when they do come up and to sort of have a plan in place as to and I've heard a lot about tapping if someone starts to feel um, a trigger coming up if like tapping is supposed to be really good but I also heard that if it's mild enough you can actually rhyme if you feel an emotion coming up you go time crime dime and doing the rhyming actually gets your mind away from an emotional connection and it can really help with if you're in a public situation and you just don't feel like going into a uh, the ugly cry uh, then I, I've tried it actually a couple of times, and uh, it it does actually seem to help. <laughs> just Never rhyming. heard this before. Yeah, That's not why, but it makes sense. Just yeah, it really does. Totally staring does. your thinking well, it, away into a different place. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It changes. Yeah, uh, you're getting out of what, your body and actually getting back into your mind. So you're getting into the intellectual. You can't hurt as much when you're in your intellectual mind. And, you know, when you're in your emotional place, that's where the pain is. Yeah, like one of the things I remember, a very simple fix for dealing with depression. Let's say you're out walking um, and you're feeling depressed. One of the things I say is look up. Because if typically depressed people look at the ground and they totally focus on the ground and are completely oblivious to everything around them. It's actually 100% true, you know. Have you ever heard, uh, like, a, uh, a parent might, when a kid is crying, uh, they say that they will actually take the kid's chin and lift his chin up, and the kid will stop crying because they say you can't actually cry when you're looking up. I've never heard that. And which is where the expression, keep your chin up, comes from. Mm. Really? That's why we, yeah, that's why we say keep your chin up. <laughs> because we can't be sad or down when our chin is up. So you can actually really alter your state. Yes. Um, for me, because I was always in pain with this or that, and I was really sensitive, I could drive my car and cry. So that didn't actually work for me. Because <laughs> I, I got a list of things to do, and I don't have time to cry. So I'd get stuff done and still just cry while I was driving. Mm. <laughs> so but that is where keep your chin, chin up comes from. But it does definitely, physiology is, is a huge part in that for sure. Yeah, and it is a lot of these these anchors that we set that can really collapse things. And you know, Nathan's got a great story with his his anchors that collapse a lot of things. But you know, equally the tapping. Um, you know, I've done EFT myself. It drove me nuts because of my my heavy thinking. It just drove my thinking nuts. But certainly, you know, all that sort of stuff. But it's um, yeah. yeah, creating these anchors to change the state, and even just the internal language to change the state. Which... Yeah, the the anchors can be incredibly powerful. The tapping, for what it's worth, I I interviewed one of the people involved in tapping. I used the books. I didn't notice any perceptible difference. It just didn't seem to work for me. I I didn't know if I was like dense as a post or what it was, but it just didn't seem to do anything that I could measure. The only thing that did come up for me in the tapping was. There's a guy, his name is Robert Smith, and Mm. he's the founder of Faster EFT. And Mm. when I was looking at the amnesia thing, he said something about amnesia one day, and my ears perked up. And what he said, which was profoundly useful to me, I was able to use it almost immediately, is that amnesia, you can't remember at the mental level, but... There are feelings involved. There are feelings in the body involved. So if you know that you're dealing with an amnesia problem and you know it's not you know, something wrong with your brain, that you've forgotten something because of an accident, but it's emotional or caused by trauma, he said, follow the feelings. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, so, and so, that, that's, that's where the healing is. Yep. 
And, and, so, and yeah, so yeah. sometimes we don't actually want to make our feelings go away. I encourage people to honor them, respect them, and listen to them. Yep. And to it's like a storm; you have to ride it out and just yes. release. It's those feelings are act when you are triggered and traumatized with stuff, and they come up. They're actually just being released. Yeah, and it's, it's, I like what you said about the riding out the storm because one of the teachings of spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle is, you know, the, the feelings, you need to sit there and feel it and all its intensity. And one of the things he said, and the, when the urge to run away comes, observe it, but don't act on it. Right. That was one of the key yeah. things because, I, I mean, running away is natural. We all want to be free of this stuff. Nobody wants to be in pain. And to run away is completely natural. The trouble is, if you run away, guess what comes back? You know. Yeah, and that's it, yeah. It's it's it is kind of messed up that in order to get yeah. better, we have to feel it. And at some level, when you're in it and you're feeling it, feeling it will make you actually want to die. And <laughs> yes. that's that's where you actually, when you're feeling that way, then. But it, I think one of the reasons we want to die is because it actually feels like that this pain is going to last forever. Mm. But yeah. that's the intellectual learning to say, this is normal, I feel this way, but that's only because I want the pain to stop. There's, and there's I, there, another... There is actually, in some ways, because I went through that, it does actually feel like when when you're finished with, you go in and you feel and you go, you know, it lasts as long as it does. It does actually, at the end, it sort of felt like a rebirth. Yeah, there is an important uh, element about what you're saying, and I remember... So another spiritual teacher's name is Ajushanti. He was talking about it. He would get people to come to his teachings, and they would say, you know, I, I feel like committing suicide. And he would go, great, wonderful. What part of you wants to die? It's not you. You're making a mistake if you think that it's you, the, uh, the whole body, whole mental system wants to die. No, what's happening is you realize in a very important way that something is no longer working for you, and that's what wants to die. What is it? Mm -hmm. So really insightful questions. In, yeah, it's the pain. We just the brain is hardwired to not be in pain. Mm -hmm. It yes. will do anything to avoid pain, and it's so messed up that in order for us to get better, we actually have to experience it. And, and bang, yep. we're going to fight or flight. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So All great. of these things get triggered, and and so it's safe. very. Absolutely. And so it's very difficult to sit with something that scares the living but Jesus out of you. And meanwhile, you're hearing from someone like these teachers, well, the only way to get through it is to face it. Like a concrete example of something like that years ago, I remember getting extremely bad news and I felt like somebody had punched me in the gut and I could barely mm -hmm. move. I could hardly breathe. I was in so much pain. I didn't know what to do. I forced myself to sit in a chair and feel it. And I took my mind, uh, or took everything out of my mind and focused on the pain. No story, no self-pity, no complaining, mm -hmm. none of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how long I was sitting in that chair, but it, eventually I started to notice that the pain started to soften and it started to lessen. And then all of a sudden it dissolved so completely that I was able to get up and go around as if nothing had ever happened. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And then it came back. But when it came back, I knew what to do. And it probably see. wasn't as severe. 
It wasn't as severe, yeah, not, not as, as the first time. You're yeah, absolutely right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so for those people who are listening to us in this broadcast, really hope that these tools are are useful to you. Uh, there, there's so many different ways of dealing with things, and one of the major reasons that we created this show is because we realized that that one size does not fit all. Yep. We, for many of us, one thing could work fabulously well for one person doesn't work at all. It's like, oh well, it's like a stick or something, or I need something different. So in in our shows, it's presenting all these different points of view from ourselves, Hamish and me, from Barbara with us tonight, and the various guests that we have on the show. I'm going to ask Barbara a question that you would normally ask Nathan. And please do. It's coming coming from that that point where you got the the trigger and all the events, uh, all the traumas came up, and you obviously you went through your decompartmentalizing process um, and and pulling it all apart, looking at each one, and coming through it. Where you are now at the other side and, and your journey forward, what, what's the sort of biggest habit that you have created that keeps you going when you sort of kick into and you've developed? What keeps me going? Well, I think being able to have opportunities like this where I can share and know that I've gone through what I've gone through um, to create the life that I have, but also to be able to have opportunities to share my experience, to let other people know that regardless of how bad circumstances are, there is hope, there's help, and, you know, to be able to learn from other people so that through collective wisdom and experiences, somebody could find the help and the tools that they need. So just, you know, one of my habits is knowing that I didn't go through everything that I've been through for nothing. Yeah. Didn't do it for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I'm loving looking, just looking at your bio and what, um, what Nathan read at the beginning. From from that age of eight, where you had that that vision, the mission that anything was possible at eight years old, and you've you've seemed to be living that. I am, I am, and you know, I have to give um, uh, my second edition of my book was dedicated to um, BB. It says, your love served me well, because it was the love of that cat that actually helped me to get into loss and um, yeah. learn how to heal from loss. But my third edition in 2017, because uh, I did a few more changes and edits, and uh, it actually is dedicated to my pastor who, at the age of four, who I remember like yesterday, actually taught me um, forgiveness. Yeah. And I think the one thing that would be a determining factor as to why I got the life. So when you say habits, I, one of my habits is to learn to forgive. You know, I don't keep grudges. I don't hate people. And for the people that took my cat, if they were to ever hear this, I'd want them to know, you know what? Nice try. You you slammed me up against a brick wall. My rose-colored glasses came off, but I picked myself up, dusted myself off, and you made me stronger, better, faster. And yeah. I'm just stronger because of it. And now I'm actually armed to do uh, suicide prevention talks and uh, because I touched that pain. And I know and anybody out there that's listening to this that may actually get into a triggered, I, I want people to know they sh- shouldn't do it alone. If they're feeling that, like you said, Nathan, where you can't breathe, they really should call someone and not be alone. It's not a, it's yeah. not a safe place. It's not a safe place to be by yourself. I had 20 years of intellectual study in that I did when I was in the thick of it. So I knew intellectually I didn't want to die, but um, 
we, when emotionally. you're in that pain, yeah, your heart wants it to, the pain just, you just want it to stop. Yep. And by the way, I did actually crack the code as to why it's dark in there. You know, that we call it, I call it the dark corners of despair. It's dark because we're not supposed to see, we're supposed to feel. That could well be true. But you know yes. what, people, in, in some cases, if you're feeling whatever they're feeling, they really shouldn't do it alone. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, this has been a really great uh, interview. It's been really, really good having you on the show. It helps that you and I have some history, that we know each other from the past. Mm-hmm. More than that, though, it's just been a really easy, very uh, flowing discussion. And it's, as with many of our interviews, it's really obvious to me that we could continue going. And unfortunately, we have come to... Well, pretty close to the end of our time here. So, yeah, I'm looking at a picture of you with your coffee cup. When you're in my city, I sure hope you come and get that cup of coffee over here. (laughs) That you you would not believe how many uh, comments I get from people about that coffee. It's such a great shot. (laughs) It 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 is, as it turned out. And uh, some people have said to me, "Where's mine?" (laughs) I know, I know. It makes me want a coffee. But if you get it back into your hometown here, you come and look me up, and we'll have that coffee. And uh, Hamish, as well, to you. I, uh, if you're in my neck of the woods, or an, I'd love to meet you in person. Uh, will be and, sometime. Yeah. Nathan's promised me a tour of, uh, of um, Canada, Canada, some well, parts yeah. of Canada. Mm-hmm. So, so going forward, you know, for our listeners, if they want to find anything, or they want to get more information about you. Where would they go for it? You know, I really like to uh, get people to join me on my uh, Facebook. Is I have Suicide Prevention Task Force. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm trying to grow that and get uh, the conversation started there. And if somebody's smoking, they can always join me at uh, BMP Method on Facebook and Twitter too. I do Twitter, which is BMP Method One. Either way, it's always nice to connect with people. I'm pretty easygoing. I if someone's got questions and they want to talk, I'm I'm you know reach out and say hi. Works by me. Mm, and thank you for the opportunity. It's great to share. It's always nice to know that I didn't do everything for nothing. <laughs> no, you didn't. I mean, it, it's, it's, and it's, I did it's get so the life. You know what? I did get the life. It's worth the blood, sweat, and tears. It yeah. really is. It might take a long time. It took me forty years, four zero. It took me forty years. But you know what? I have to tell you, all the work that you do and everything, it's worth it. Anything yeah. is possible. Yeah. Anything is possible. Thank you guys for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Thank My you, pleasure. Really appreciate you being here. So for those of us who, who have been listening to us on this uh, recording, we've, we've come to the end of the time. My name is Nathan Siegel. I'm here with my colleague Hamish, based in out of Australia, and with our guest Barbara Miller. We are the Thought Hackers, and thanks for being here. You've been listening to The Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts.